0: All right, everybody out there and listen, man, welcome to episode 10. That's right. We're on double digits of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. I'm back here this week in our virtual studio. I'm here with my co-host, Steve from Premier Property Group. What's going on, Steve?
1: Hey, Tucker. Good to be back.
0: A little bit of a dreary day, huh? Not exactly uh, the sunny
1: Friday I was hoping for, but you
0: know, hey, we're inside recording, so I guess it's all right.
1: Yeah, yeah. If there's anything that's going to slow down the... Californians moving to Oregon, it would be this. (laughs) Yeah, our nine months a year of rain.
0: That'll definitely do it.
1: All the ones who came here, you know, in early spring or late spring, and we had a long spring and dry season. This might be when they start calling us up to list their homes. and so <laughs> Maybe it, it was not
0: such a good idea to move up to this rainy uh, city. But hey, that's a topic for another podcast, though. But hey, we got a great show this week. We're going to talk about affordable housing and the growth of Portland as a city and kind of how they relate together. It's been a hot topic in the news lately. But before we dive too deep into that, uh, I figured we'd give our listeners a little snapshot of you know, maybe what's going on in the real estate trenches this week with you and myself. So maybe kick it off, Steve. What's going on with you this this week.
1: Sounds good. Yeah. So in my personal business, there's a ton going on. Um, we've got, all oh, kidding aside, a lot of out of town buyers that are calling us. We're setting up searches, getting them rolling on different ventures. A couple of them are retiring up here. Some of them are buying homes like a year or two before they retire with talk of renting it out temporarily. I just got a call yesterday from a doctor actually in the Bay Area. She joked with me in the conversation. She said, I know I'm not supposed to tell this to people from Portland, but I'm from the Bay Area and I'm looking to relocate there. (laughs) And I actually, I joked back with her and I said, well, you can tell it to the realtors because they're never going to have a problem with that. But I'd probably not say it to everyone else.
0: (laughs) Were they Um, thinking, just a quick question, I mean, in terms of people buying and then renting, were they thinking that they were going to rent for like, you know, like Airbnb style? Or were they going to find like a long term tenant for two years and then move in after that?
1: I think usually long term. I have heard a lot more about the Airbnb and I've had several people call and be interested in that and talk about how that's lucrative and they really want to go out in a big way with that. I do have to think that's probably harder on a property to have a variety of people coming in and out versus a long term tenant, even though in all seriousness, that can be hard in its own way on a property, as you and I have discussed in the past. But Yeah, Airbnb, there's talk of it. But I think these people who are looking to relocate in a a year or two, I think they want to preserve the property in as nice a condition as they can. So I think they're looking for long term tenants.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, it's a little bit of a strange idea to me to buy it early and then rent it out and then eventually move to it. But seems like maybe that's a way for people to at least have the end game already established. And then it's worth cleaning up the property doing a little bit of small renovation or whatever in the interim to make it livable for them when they do move up here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, and then I had another interesting occurrence here in the past week. I have a listing and I got a call on it. It's a $700,000 view property from a Southern California buyer. And he was very interested. He's been looking for some time. He hasn't been working with an agent. He's just been looking online for quite some extensive period of time. He was very complimentary about some of the marketing we do, including the 3D tour and, and some of the video tours and said he felt like he had already been in the property and was ready to all but write an offer. He said he wants to get here to examine it in person. I spent an hour on the phone with him. He was talking about flights within a few days. I had told my seller about this right away. I get a call from the seller saying, hey, the weirdest thing happened. Another agent called with the exact same scenario, a a Southern California buyer that is looking to relocate here and is very interested and has been looking for a while and wants to get a flight up here. So I called the buyer back and I said, I'm not sure what's going on here, but if you want my help, let me know, and I'm happy to help you out. The other agent went to the house, previewed it. I was expecting to not hear from that buyer again. I think every realtor out there has some story like this that they can relate. But lo and behold, the guy calls me back and he says, I want to work with you. I I, I don't know exactly what he was doing with that other agent. I, he may have been using him a little bit. So it was the
0: same guy, just to clarify. It
1: was absolutely okay. the same guy. And- what I perceived to have happened was he wanted another neutral set of eyes to go there to examine it and give their take on it prior to booking his flights, even though I don't think that agent knew that, unfortunately for him. And, anyways, he called me back. He is coming this weekend. I'm meeting him there on Sunday afternoon, but it's one of those crazy stories that only happens to realtors. I often joke that we're one of the few professions where you can do 99% of the job and still not get paid. (laughs) I mean, yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, he definitely was, uh, using and abusing the other guy a little bit. It sounds like, but, uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, imagine a painter or a contractor, you know, even a a doctor for that matter, you know, doing 99% of the work and then and then not getting paid. I mean, it just doesn't happen. But in real estate, I mean, in in the case of a sale fail, and I'm not talking about this specific example, I don't think this agent did 99% of the job by any means. But as realtors, I mean, oftentimes, we will work 99% of the way there. And then on the last day, it falls apart, and we don't get paid. And we kind of move on. And that's just kind of the the resignation that that's just the nature of the business. It is also why it is nice when we do get paid.
0: Yeah, (laughs) that's true
1: on transactions, it'll look like maybe it was an easy deal for them or maybe there was a big commission check. And to outsiders, it'll look like, hey, you know, that was a lot of money for what you did on this one. But, you know, it averages out because there's a lot of them that we don't get that kind of money on. Yeah,
0: that's true. You got to bust your hump on some and there's no reward for it. So it kind of evens out in the end a lot of times.
1: Absolutely. So on the uh, business side of things, we're working on, you know, I talked a couple weeks back about signage and some things we we're doing there that are really exciting. This week, I've been really focused on directional signs, you know, the kinds that you see all over town on the various busy streets, pointing people into the listing. It's kind of interesting. I mean, in some ways, I've personally believe that those are more important than the actual yard sign for the sheer fact that they are on the busy streets and they do have far more traffic so we're really working diligently on this we're doing some pretty cool things as far as branding making sure agents names are on those signs as well as their phone number of course the company logo but we're also doing something really cool where As the property goes pending, they'll be able to put pending on the sign. As it gets sold, they can put sold on the sign. If they do a price reduction, they can put price reduction. So we're doing a little innovating in that regards to ensure that those signs are out there, they're visible, and they're a little marketing tool for the agent because... That's really the message you want out there on those busy streets is that you have a pending listing, not just a listing, but a pending one when they do go pending and also drawing people in and giving them directions as to where to go when you do want that as well. I'm curious
0: real quick, though, on a question that I see a lot. I'm like, hmm, I'm curious what you think of this. So you have a listing, right? You put the sign up. Let's say you overprice it or it's not priced right. And then you do a price reduction. Do you like to put price reduced on the sign? What's your feeling about that and how that portrays the product? Or do you think it even affects it?
1: We do. We do. I can see where you would say that. And I would never go toe-to-toe with an agent that said, I I won't do that because I could see where they're coming from and feeling like that's a negative. But the reality is they're going to see that eventually, I feel. So... If you're doing a price reduction, you've been on the market, generally speaking, for a while. In fact, I tell my sellers, look, when we go live with this listing, you better be confident that you're not overpricing it because you're going to be married to that price for at least a few weeks because there's nothing worse than taking a listing live and then going whoops and reducing the price three days later. I mean, I've seen agents do that, and I, I just think that's a colossal blunder Because it shows disparity on the side of the seller, and that's just not a message you want out there. So back to your question. So if you've had it out there for a few weeks, there's a reason you're doing a price reduction. You're either not getting a lot of showings or you're getting feedback that you're overpriced. So I view it like, hey, let's give the market what they want. Let's show that we're a motivated seller We're moving in the right direction, and let's try to get some new interest in there. I feel like they're going to find out eventually anyways. But again, that's not something that I would ever fault another agent for having a different opinion on.
0: Yeah, I'm just curious your opinion. Obviously, I have mine, but I can see both sides of the fence. So, I mean, eventually they're going to see it anyway. So at the end of the day, I guess, tomato, tomato, right?
1: Exactly. How are things going for you, Tucker? Uh, good, good. We uh, we got a lot going on as
0: far as new acquisitions. I was actually out in the field this morning, knee deep in sewer lines, trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, we got our Dunthorpe project that we're completing all our front end due diligence on. Kind of funny thing though. So the property doesn't have a sewer main in front of it; it has one behind it, and there's a couple properties in between where the sewer main is and where this lot is we're buying. So there's uh, laterals that run off the sewer main that cross other properties. But the problem is when they installed them which means that we can eventually tap to one of these laterals and utilize the sewer. They never recorded a document saying where they are or what they are with a legal description. So the city has no idea where these sewer lines are, what these sewer lines are, which is a kind of a rarity. It happens every now and again, but not usually in a uh, you know really populated, developed area like Dunthorpe. So I spent this morning basically tracing down where these sewer lines are, what they are, mapping them out. And now we've got to create a legal description and a map to record so that when we go to build this house, people... that eventually buy it from us know, you know, what they're hooked up to, because that's obviously a big thing. It's also a pressurized line, which is kind of interesting. A lot of places in Portland, you can't pump your sewage. They don't allow for grinder pumps. You have to have fall, right? When you scope the sewer line, you have a listing or a buyer that's going to buy a listing. You know, part of the inspection process is scoping a sewer line. And so if that sewer line has a belly or, you know, maybe it doesn't have enough fall, you get back up in the line. And then that's probably something you write in your inspection addendum is to repair the line or repair the belly, right? Yeah. Yes. So in this case, the line from where the property is to the main is uphill. All the surrounding properties actually utilize a pump as well to pump the waste uphill in a pressurized line. So you can't actually scope the line to the main in this particular case, because it's pressurized. And if you took the cap off, you'd have like a geyser of sewage, (laughs) you know, blowing. So we had to be real careful today. So anyway, interesting thing to find all this stuff out. But as it turns out, it's a normal thing in that area of Dunthorpe to actually pump the waste. Whereas in most of Portland, they don't allow for it, or it's not a normal thing by any means. But there's like four lines that come in, but we figured it all out. So fortunately, there's a lateral that's right where the property starts that we're going to be building on. So it shouldn't be too much of a pain in the, you know, what for us, but all things we need to figure out on the front end before we start digging up things and knocking trees down, because we don't want a pressurized sewer main to blow (laughs) in the process of our excavation.
1: I will tell you, Tucker, there are few things that scare buyers more ...than sewer issues. I joke that it literally scares the bleep out of them. And I think it's a combination of the fact that it is what it is. I mean, it's raw sewage. I think that's scarying of its own right. <laughs> but also the fact that it's invisible. It's under the house. They can't see it. They're relying on this camera and this person's word. And when they start to hear anything's amiss, boy... ...you can get through it usually. But usually it's one of the things that get addressed seldom do they say, oh, yeah, there's a sewer issue. Let's not fix it. And, you know, focus on other things or even ask for a credit, even though sometimes they will do the credit, but they usually intend to fix it right away. It's unlike any type of, you know, so many other repairs that come up in the inspection process. They'll work through They'll go, oh, yeah, I guess we'll be doing that in the next five years. That's just not one of them.
0: Yeah. You know, and the other thing, too, is I think it's just kind of a big gray area. Not a lot of people know much about it. I'm sure a lot of the buyers, when you do a sewer scope, it's probably the first time they've done one in buying a house process. It didn't seem to be the norm prior to like 2004-ish for whatever reason, I mean, maybe they did them, maybe they didn't, but now obviously that radon, you know, all the all the basics get covered in an inspection process. So anyway, we got it figured out. We just confirmed that our plan, we're going to be building our Street of Dreams plan that we built in 2013 on this lot. It'll work out really well. It was actually a plan that Builder Magazine voted as one of the best plans in America. So a little pat on our own back since we designed it with MassCord and it's been a really great selling plan for them as well since MassCord retained the rights to it. So I'm really excited about the way this is going to turn out and, you know, having new construction. In Dunthorpe. It's going to be a really, really cool project. So, we're definitely kicking that one off. We just closed on a big piece of land down the street from my own house. We're going to probably finish the partitioning process into three lots. But as we talked about before, we're probably only going to be able to build two because one of them will be a flag lot. But the one that will be a flag lot will be a really cool ranch. So, I'm really excited about that project too because you don't get to build a big ranch very often. So, I think that'll be a hot, hot property. And then we're actually breaking ground starting on Monday with a new project on Lake Grove Avenue, one we've been stuck in planning for a while. We had to rejigger our plan and we just got the
1: green light. So
0: we're going full steam ahead. We got a lot of really great projects and I'm excited to put some houses up over the course of this winter.
1: Well, congratulations. You got some great stuff going on. I called you, I think, last week a little bit asking some questions about your Dunthorpe project. I do have a buyer that's looking in Lake Oswego. They actually started in Dunthorpe and now they're kind of a little bit more focused on Lake Oswego, northern part of Lake Oswego. But yeah, I, I was really excited to hear what you had to say about it. And I did propose it to them. And it's definitely something they're considering as well.
0: Yeah, it'll be an amazing house when it's done. And the beauty of this is it's right on the edge of Lake Oswego and Dunthorpe. So some of Dunthorpe I'm not a super big fan of because it's buried so deep. You know, it takes you 15 minutes to get to Starbucks. This place, you know, it's like five minutes to Starbucks. So you get the best of Dunthorpe and you get the best of downtown Lake Oswego. So I think it'll be a great project. And I'm excited for us to kick it off here very soon.
1: It's not on the park by chance, is it, Tryon?
0: No, it's by it. It's on Iron Mountain Boulevard. So it's just down the street on the way to uh, State Street. So got it. Well, that pretty much is uh, the highlights for me and uh, also for you and your business. But this week, we've got a really cool topic, and it's one that's been in the news a lot lately. There's a lot of sub-headline stories that kind of tie into it. And it's really all about Portland's affordability, whether it be houses, rent. I think it's a hot topic right now. I think it's one that definitely deserves some conversation. And so I figured we'd devote this show to, you know, kind of talking about it, seeing what you think, seeing what I think, and really talking about some of the headlines and some of the opinions that are out there right now and and really dissecting it a little bit. So why don't you kick it off with maybe an article or, you know, part of that topic that we can kind of start our conversation from?
1: Yeah. So there was an article in the Oregonian this week about Portland's rising rents. And I've been hearing this from clients, too. I had a buyer call me earlier in the week, and they were a person that normally wouldn't be a buyer. In the sense that the price point they're talking about and the amount of income they have, and just their scenario, normally you would think of them as a renter. But she expressed to me how frustrated she is with the rental market. And so they're scrambling and doing everything they can to try to get into the purchase market, which is. Kind of an interesting concept because you and I sit here all the time and talk about how the purchase market is and how hot it is. But clearly, it seems like in some ways the rental market is even worse. In fact, the article that I was reading said that the median rent in Portland is now $1,700. And I'm assuming that factors in apartments, and it's not just single-family homes, but I can't say definitively. It, it just said Portland's median rent is now $1,700. That, that's a pretty mind-boggling figure, because I can remember not too long ago when if somebody told me they had $1,700 for housing, I would never think of them as a renter. I would think, wow, you you should be buying a house. But to have the median rent at $1,700, that's a lot. Now, it did also say that San Francisco's $4,600, So we're doing good there (laughs) in comparison, but it also was likening that we're moving in that direction. You made an interesting comment about Portland growing up. Say it again on air, what you were saying about that.
0: So, you know, we've always, for at least as long as I've been living here and been alive, you know, we've been the cheap alternative to Seattle and definitely the cheap alternative to San Francisco. And so we're kind of that sleepier, smaller, less expensive, you know, lower cost of living type city, but it still has a, you know, a Portlandia factor, a cool factor, whatever that draws people here just an overall quality of life. Well, I think that we're on the verge of that changing. I think we're starting to grow up as a city. Uh, Like we talked about, traffic's not getting better. It's getting worse. And the reason being is because we've had, you know, more and more people moving here and they anticipate, you know, a large chunk of people continuing to move here. And I think that's taking us from kind of a major metro, but a smaller major metro into one that's growing into itself and actually growing up and being a place where people actually move to. I know when I was going to University of Colorado, I literally met maybe like one other person besides my roommate that was from Portland and I didn't know anybody that was going to be moving to Portland as like a destination that didn't have family there after they graduated. I mean, it just wasn't something that people did. Well, now I think that's changing. I think people are moving here for, you know, a variety of reasons, but people are continuing to move here in larger numbers and and I think that's changing our city a lot and I think it's a changing our affordability ultimately.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. I fully agree. And so what this article was talking about a lot, and this has been in the national news as well. I've seen, I think there was a Harvard study this week as well that was talking about affordability in the rental market and how there's not enough low income housing being built. And this article was talking about that, and it was talking about solutions in Portland for low income housing. And one thing that cracked me up was a term they said that I'd never heard of. It's an acronym. It's N-I-M-B-Y. So NIMBYs. It stands for not in my backyard. And it basically is saying that everybody, when you talk to them, is all about and all for affordable housing, except in their backyard. So it's one of those things. That everybody wants it, but they just don't want it to be right there near their property. And yeah, so I- they're talking about the challenges of that
0: I think you're absolutely right. I think that uh, one of the articles actually pointed out that we had a large percentage of our uh, population seem to be NIMBYs here in Portland, which, you know, that goes to your point that, uh, you know, people are major advocates of wanting more housing options, which basically makes housing more affordable, right? The more options there are within the marketplace, the less expensive housing can be, whether it be single family, whether it be multifamily, whatever it is. But the problem is, is that most people... Don't want it to happen in their backyard. They don't want the parking that's going to be taken up. They don't want the construction that's going to occur. They don't want the character of their neighborhood to be disrupted at all. So there's all these factors that, although they want it and they want Portland to stay on the more affordable side. They don't want a lot of the redevelopment that has to occur in order to at least help that. It won't totally fix it because we're growing up as a city. It's going to become more expensive to live closer in the city. That's just the reality that people are going to have to come to. But being able to redevelop land that is not best utilized right now, you know, that gives us the opportunity to create more housing. And ultimately, the more housing there is, the less it's going to cost, maybe not in a huge amount, but it is going to cost less because there's going to be more options, more supply that'll kind of balance out the demand that's there.
1: Yeah. And the other thing that was interesting in this article, another topic that it said was that a lot of people are moving back into the urban areas, the city, downtown Portland. It had an interesting statistic. It said the suburbs used to sell at a 9% premium above homes in Portland. That was about a decade ago. Now, 10 years later, the opposite is true. Portland homes now sell at a 7% premium over the suburbs. And one thing I can't help but associate this with is some of the traffic issues. I think as traffic has gotten worse and continues to get worse, because I think we agree that it's not going to get better, people are starting to reevaluate. Do I want to be in my car all that time or do I want to be closer to where I work and potentially even play in downtown? And so people are making decisions, you know, on a daily basis as far as they pertain to real estate in that regards.
0: I think you're absolutely right. And I mean, I think on a bigger level, I think... People are not wanting to live the suburbs life necessarily quite as much as in the past. You know, the two dogs, white picket, or the one dog, white picket fence, 2.5 kids, whatever it is. You know, they want to be a little more hip. You know, they want to be a little closer into the city. They want to be able to go out to dinner easily. They want to be able to do a lot of the things that you can do in the city and have that lifestyle that comes with it. And, you know, a lot of bigger cities have been like that for a while. Portland hasn't really been quite like that up until recently. And so I think that's why we're seeing a lot of these prices you know, increase close into the the core of the city is because there is this increase in demand for all types of people that want to live in the city. Now, that's not to say that there's not affordable housing in the Portland area. You just have to go farther out, right? I mean, the more demand there is for closer in, the higher prices are going to be. That's just the way it is with every big city. But I think the problem right now is a lot of people want to have affordable housing and also be right in the middle of the city, which is kind of like having your cake and eat it too. It kind of goes... against all real estate laws, right?
1: Yeah. And then the other thing that happens when you talk about urban urban housing is parking. The parking issue, that's kind of the elephant in the room with regards to the challenges of people moving into the city.
0: And I think that's a lot of the pushback too on a lot of these multifamily projects is that, you know, a lot of the neighborhoods don't want the parking congestion that that is going to cause by, let's say, putting another 150 rental units in, you know, on the corner of somewhere like, you know, I think up on Fremont, they were trying to put a building in. I'm not sure if they did or not, but the neighborhood was pushing back because they didn't want the additional traffic and cars and parking issues that that's going to cause.
1: So this ties nicely with the other subject we are going to talk about today, Tucker, why don't you go into that? It has to do with putting up houses and things that can get in the way of that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we had an interesting headline this past week in terms of a a lot in East Moreland. And there's another one in the Clinton neighborhood that Everett Custom Homes, I'm sure they're more than sick of talking about this and hearing about this. But they had a couple trees on one lot in particular in East Moreland that the owner of Everett was in negotiations with the neighborhood. And they actually brought the mayor in as well because the mayor lives in the neighborhood. And then one of the co-creators of South Park actually chipped in a big chunk of change. And so they were able to come up to a price within reason of the $900,000 price that Everett Custom Homes had put on the lot. And they came to an agreement, and I think ultimately it was a good idea for Everett to just, you know, wash their hands of it and sell it off. But it really goes to show that these are kind of the quintessential NIMBYs, not my backyarders, right? You know, people want more housing options, but not at the expense of a tree or two trees or whatever it is. And, you know, you can argue for and against it. But the reality is, is that, you know, if you're not building new housing, you're not redeveloping land that's not best utilized, we're not creating any more housing. And that's not going to help our housing problem. And so, The Eastmoreland neighborhood has now bought back this lot that has two giant trees on it. And, you know, from what I heard, they were able to raise enough actual cash and then they're actually going to have to get a loan for the other part of it. I'm not sure who's going to be responsible for paying that loan on an ongoing basis. I'm sure maybe the neighborhood will have a fund that pays the mortgage on it until it's paid off. But it just goes to show that people want affordable housing, but they also don't want redevelopment to occur in their backyard at the expense of parking, trees, change of character in the neighborhood. There's all these things. So we're kind of in a catch-22 where there's a lot of opposition to redevelopment, but yet there's a lot of advocates for affordable housing. So I'm really not sure where we go from here.
1: Yeah, I've been following that story pretty closely as well, Tucker. It's an interesting one to me. Down to the fact that, like you said, Matt Stone, the co-creator of South Park, is right there in the middle of the thick of this. It almost seems like he's going to create an episode <laughs> about this someday.
0: Yeah, I would think so.
1: Yeah, but now a couple things I noticed that might, and we can double check ourselves, but I do think, and this in some ways is a positive, some ways is a negative, okay? I think Everett Custom Homes made money. I don't think they bought it for 900 and...
0: No, no, no. They made money. But yeah, uh, I'm saying it was a good idea for them to sell it, not in terms of just the money, because of course they did. I mean, they, they put a price on it that said, look, if we're going to forego this project, we have to at least make some money because, you know, this is inventory that we're going to turn into a finished product and we have to create revenue for the company and we have to pay people. I mean, they have responsibilities to keep people employed and give people jobs. and Exactly. So- they exactly. definitely made money, but at the same time, I was just talking in terms of the brain damage and the fighting and the ongoing picketing. You know, there's a lot that comes with that. And so is it worth it to do that project and deal with all that?
1: Oh, no, 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 no. And they wanted nothing to do with cutting those trees. The the bad publicity that would come from that would never be justified in the small profit they'd make there. If I have my figures right, from what I did, the research I did and the reading on- online that I did, I think they bought it for 600000 in the summer, in like the mid-summer, when this first came into the news, there was a deal that was going to get them 900000 That fell apart. And then more recently, there was Everett moving forward again with cutting the trees down, and that's when somebody literally went and hung out in the trees to prevent that. And I think people- they called him
0: Lorax Dave. That was the name they gave
1: <laughs> Yeah, and... People with chainsaws came and they, I'm sure, wanted nothing to do with that bad publicity as well as protesters are there. So they then came up with another deal that it ended up at 800000 that they paid Everett Custom Homes. And if I saw correctly, it was another developer who purchased it. I don't think it's closed yet, but is in the mix to purchase it. And they're talking about putting one house, potentially leaving the trees alone and putting one house, because I think Everett was going to do something you talked about last week, where they're going to do two smaller houses. So a couple other interesting factoids with regards to this whole thing was that the mayor's office did get involved in brokering the negotiations, which is kind of a slippery slope, in my opinion, because I agree if you start doing that, where does it stop? I don't know if you've looked around lately, Tucker, but there's a lot of trees in Portland. (laughs)
0: Yeah, and I know exactly where the mayor's office got involved, which is because the mayor lives in East Moreland. But that being said, they got the deal done. I know whether or not there's a developer involved or not. I don't know who it is, but the people from the East Moreland area actually called our office and wanted us to be that developer. Obviously, we respectfully declined, but it's a tough situation. And, you know, a little side note is that in defense of Everett is they bought the lot and the house next door. So they were actually already split. So really, if the homeowner should be mad at somebody, they should be mad at the person that split their lot and sold it as two because they wanted to make more money, right? So Everett bought each one for three and some change, 300,000 plus, and then they sold it for a combined 800, but they had holding costs, they probably had a ton of legal costs, they've had some clearing costs. You know, they didn't make out like bandits. They made a few bucks. But at the end of the day, that was two projects that they foregoed in order to not have to deal with the ongoing negotiations and brain damage and picketing and everything else that goes on.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So at least the process did work. Nobody jumped in and from a legal standpoint prevented them from doing it. It was more about a capitalistic approach like, hey, what does it take to make you interested in selling it as it is? And and it worked in this case. Definitely interesting to watch. Definitely is a slice of Portlandia in how it went down. I mean, it's one of those stories that I think a lot of people will agree, only in Portland.
0: There was one interesting
1: last thing I'll say in terms of that is that they
0: did a news story, and I'm not advocating for or against the people that were trying to save the trees, but as a grown man, there was a guy on the news who was reading out of the children's book, The Lorax, and he was crying in front of his neighborhood on the news. And I don't know about you, but I don't know that I would want to be that grown man.
1: Yeah, yeah. I threw you in the hot seat there, Steve. Interesting story.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So beyond that, I know there was another tree over on 41st and Clinton area, and I don't know what's going to happen with that, but it seemed like this one incident kind of provided... A little steam for these other ones and somebody had climbed that tree as well and so you know you're right it's a slippery slope is the mayor going to get involved on every tree negotiation moving forward or is the city going to say look developers have the right to cut down trees that are going to impede their ability to redevelop the land to its utmost potential
1: Well, here's another thought for you, Tucker. Imagine, now, Everett Custom Homes cared about their reputation, and I think the last thing they wanted was to be in the 5 o'clock news with their sign in the front yard and a couple tree stumps there, right? So they cared, but how many developers or people in general that are out there that don't care about their reputation, and suddenly if they own a lot already or are looking at buying a lot that has a historic tree or an old growth or something— Where does it end? Could we suddenly see these lots being held hostage where, you know, suddenly a memorandum is going out that I'm about to cut this unless I get paid?
0: (laughs) You know, I'll be honest with you. We've dealt with that a lot. We've dealt with a lot of animosity. I've had multiple death threats at my office from people that I know probably have no business following through with that, but they thought it would be a good scare tactic to send it to me in terms of us, you know, needing to cut down a tree. It's not that we were just evil tree cutters, but, you know, we're building new homes and sometimes trees, even if they fall outside the footprint of the new home... If your foundation falls within the drip line of that tree, the safe and responsible thing to do is to cut that tree down because otherwise you run the risk of that tree falling on somebody's house, maybe killing their child, killing their spouse. I mean, my wife, her cousin was driving down the street in Lake Oswego three years ago, and there was a tree that a homeowner had tried to cut down, but because there was pushback, the city told him he couldn't do it. That tree fell down in a windstorm that should have been cut down previously, fell right on her truck, almost killed her, broke her back, broke her stepmom's neck, she's forever going to have rods in her back and she's going to have a tough life for the rest of her life, all because people were advocating for a tree to stay that really wasn't on their property. So it is a slippery slope. At what expense are we saving trees sometimes? And it really needs to cause people to at least think about that before they come to an opinion.
1: Yeah, what a tragic story that was. And here's another interesting factoid for you, Tucker. Do you know why Portland is called Stump Town?
0: Go for it. I don't know.
1: Because way back in the day, 100 years ago, there was stumps everywhere in Portland. Do you know why there were stumps everywhere in Portland?
0: Because there were trees everywhere at one point.
1: At one time. Look at Tryon Creek Park, right? That's what Portland looked like. So here's the, the little factoid that'll boggle people's minds. If none of those trees had been cut down, would any of us be living in Portland? And the answer is no, of course. So a balanced approach is definitely required. I can't imagine anyone saying no tree should ever be cut down because if that was the case, Portland would not be here. I think a lot of it
0: just comes down to, you know, we need redevelopment to occur and people need to get educated in terms of what trees absolutely have to be cut if you're going to redevelop land in order to try and satisfy the demand for ongoing and new housing that we're going to need here as people continue to flock to Portland.
1: Exactly. So
0: hopefully people can come to their own opinion, but at least look at both sides of the issue and and really understand that we have to create more housing in order to try and balance off prices and keep them from continuing to go up, up, up. And from what I've read, the majority of people don't want to see housing become so expensive here that we're comparable to the Seattle and we'll never be San Francisco. But, you know, they want us to try and be the cheap alternative to both of those. And we're going to need to be able to create new housing in order to make that happen.
1: That's so true.
0: All right. Well, I think we kicked a dead horse here with this issue a few times. I threw you in the hot seat a couple of times. You were properly evaded, so that was good. <laughs> but I guess if anybody has hate mail, they can send it
1: to me for this week's show.
0: That should wrap up episode 10 of this week. Before we go, Steve, any parting words
1: of wisdom? Everybody enjoy your weekend and try to stay dry. And any Californians out there that are rethinking their move up here, let me know.
0: <laughs> Steve will definitely help you. So <laughs> all
1: right, guys, this is episode ten of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. We're signing off till next
0: week. Thanks again for listening to our show and make sure to tune in next week for another great episode of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.